Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Hello, hello. It is Greg here with a special mid-season bonus episode of Witch Investigates. We did one of these in our first sustainability-focused season and we thought, hey, let's do the same for this season. However, this time it isn't an extended edit of some of the conversations that I've already had. Although we may do that as an end-of-season bonus because, as always, there are way more brilliant bits that we haven't been able to squeeze into the episodes. However, this episode, this is something new that we haven't done before. A live panel event. A huge thank you to those of you who joined us live on the Witch Facebook page for the event and to those of you who sent in questions in advance too. Next week, I'm back with a brand new investigation. Uh, We've got four more in the season on the way for you. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to give you a teaser or not. So, um, hey, let's record it. We can cut it out if not. Coming up, I'll be looking at smart assistants, scammers, being tracked online and asking how much is too much tech? However, for now, here is what happened in the live panel event. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first ever live episode of the Witch Investigates podcast. I am Greg Foote. I'm a science journalist and the producer and host of the show, uh, which is the UK's consumer champion. We work to make life simpler, fairer and safer for everyone. And Which Investigates is a podcast that explores the questions and the topics that are most concerning you. Our first season focused on claims of sustainability, asking whether going plastic free or getting an electric car or switching to a plant based diet really would have genuine eco effects or whether the pledges and the claims that companies and products are making are simply greenwashing. Our second season of Witch Investigates is on a totally different topic. It's all about tech and security. We're already halfway through our investigations with past episodes asking how hackable is your home? Can someone remotely take control of your car while you're driving it? How safe is your digital money? And are you being misled by fake reviews? Today, I'm joined by some of the experts from those episodes. I'm going to be putting your tech and security related questions directly to them. We're going to be covering three big areas, home hacking and cybersecurity, fake reviews and digital money. That's everything from crypto to the future of money. Big thanks to anyone who has sent me in questions already. I've got loads through Twitter and through Instagram. Uh, you can find me there at Greg Foot, and which is at Witch UK. Loads of questions also sent in through Witch Conversation, which is our online community where you can discuss and share consumer issues that matter to you. Also lots sent over on our new email address, which is podcasts at witch.co.uk. So hello also to everyone who's watching us live on Facebook right now. If you've got any additional questions, put them in the comments and I'll pick some out and I will put them to our guests. But it's about time I introduced, I think. First up, I am joined by Kate Bevan, the editor of Witch Computing Magazine, um, an expert and early adopter of lots of the smart tech that we've been talking about 
out so far in the podcast. Next on the panel is Andy Lachlan, a principal researcher in the WITCH product testing team. Andy specialises in security, uh, has coordinated a whole load of clever product tests, which I'm sure we'll hear about later. My third panellist is another member of the Great Witch team, Marianne Cownan. She joined us for our episode on all things fake reviews. She specialises in retail and e-commerce, and her work includes shining a light on the abundance of fake and incentivized reviews on online platforms. And taking the fourth and final digital seat is Gavin Brown, an Associate Professor in Financial Technology at the University of Liverpool, or someone we like to call Captain Crypto, for anyone who listens to the Witch Money podcast. Gavin joined us for episode three of this uh, tech and security season, where we looked into digital money. So, hello all, let's get some questions to you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go topic by topic. Um, we're going to begin with hackable homes and cybersecurity. So I'm looking to you both, Kate and Andy. Before I put people's questions to you, Andy, maybe you can start. Maybe you can kick us off on a very few quick top lines on how your home can be hacked and also whether there are certain devices that are more susceptible to being hacked than others. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, I just want to reassure people that uh, while home hacking is increasing, it still is relatively rare. So don't panic when you, if you hear what I'm about to say. Um, your devices, if you secure them, will be safe. But why devices get targeted um, is for two primary reasons. First of all, maybe for a targeted attack. So a motivated attacker looking to target your home devices. They might be in a local area. They might be uh, a, a, know you or know the, know the place. And they might be looking for some kind of malicious purpose. But I would say that the real most common way is much more of a bulk, much more of an anonymous attack, where attackers are just constantly crawling the Internet, looking for devices that are insecure, connecting to them and then and then harnessing them for whatever means, usually for what's called a botnet, which is a large collection of different devices, which can be harnessed into a bit of an army to then attack websites, not try and knock websites offline, or do other things that um, are sort of surveillance-based or, or anything that requires a lot of computing power. And uh, usually what we tend to find is it's, uh, the usual suspects are wireless cameras, usually um, uh, can be susceptible, and certainly have been over the years, smart doorbells increasingly, uh, but really anything that's not be properly secured is potentially at risk. Thanks, Andy. Um, I'm going to follow that straight up then, Kate, with a question from Stuart on Twitter, who asks, would you ever put a smart camera inside your home knowing that it is susceptible to being hacked? Yes, I would. And in fact, I have done, but with lots of caveats. Um, the main caveat being, obviously, that it's a brand name you know and trust that, that has a track record of security. Uh, we've done lots of investigations, and Andy, particularly leading those investigations, has found that the problematic ones are the ones without brand names or the ones that use an app that's used across lots of different cameras, not necessarily from the same manufacturer. Also, I want cameras that make it absolutely clear when they're on recording with a green light, for example example. And I also let people know if they're in my house that there are cameras and I point out when they are when they are and aren't recording and that they're visible to the people who are in my house. And finally, I actually quite like devices with a physical switch to turn the camera off. That's not always possible, but a lot of things like the Amazon Echo devices, for example, have a physical switch. Yeah, um, very useful. And also being able to cover something, as you say, with a physical switch that way is useful. Andy, um, Simon on Twitter says, how is the average consumer expected to be able to work out which suppliers are trustworthy in terms of cyber security? Is there a cyber logo needed with appropriate governance behind it? Great question. Thanks, Simon. 
Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, so it is a challenge. Uh, I think Kate's absolutely right that, um, you know, there are brands out there who have got a history. They've got a provenance um, they've got. I mean, it's very basic, but they've got a website with actually that's um, got an actual proper contact details and a clear policies for things like updates and customer service. You know, these things are all indicators that the company has done things responsibly. Um, the problems we see is often that it's very diffuse. You, you can't quite tell even who runs the app. You can't quite tell who runs the camera. You can't quite tell if the seller is also the maker of the device. Um, so one of the things we've done recently with a few stories is really trying to highlight how this needs to be improved. There are cybersecurity logos in the world. Um, Singapore has one in operation. I think our government has looked at it and, and considered it. The, the problem is, of course, is just putting another logo on something that people don't quite understand is not always the answer. What you really need is better regulation, more control and more responsibility in what goes on sale. Because if it's not secure, it shouldn't be on sale in the first place. Yeah, and talking labels actually, we'll get to this um, when I when I uh, jump into this with Marianne. But uh, we learned that labels on some online platforms don't necessarily mean what you think they mean. But before I go to that topic, one last one then for you, then Kate um, Els on Twitter says, other than avoiding anything online at all, uh, what is your best tip for staying safe and keeping your information secure in our current online tech connected world? Well, there's always, of course, going completely off grid, but we know that's not possible these days. So my absolute top tip is use two-factor authentication and ideally don't do it with SMS. That means setting up your account so that when you log in, you're challenged also to enter a code that's generated on your phone or via a separate hardware key. That keeps your account safe, even if somebody's got your password. Also, I'd add... Use make sure you've got separate, different passwords, strong passwords for every single account. Don't use the same password. Don't use a pattern involving the same password. Unusual password tips apply. Don't use your pet's name. Don't use your, your dad's name, that kind of thing. And finally, make sure your devices are up to date. I mean, I see people using phones that are 10 years old, and I just hold my head in horror when I see something like that. And I know it's a nightmare making sure, and it's an expensive nightmare, making sure your devices are still in support. We're doing lots of work on that at the moment. Do your updates. Those are my main tips. Great stuff. Thanks, Kate. I saw Andy nodding along there as well. Very much agreeing. So great. I've got loads more questions about home hacking and cybersecurity that I'll be putting to you both coming up. If you're watching now, you're watching live, please do put any additional questions uh, into the comments and I'll pull out a few for, for Kate and Andy later. On to fake reviews then. This was a fascinating episode. Marianne, this is going to be for you. This blew my brain actually when we, when we were talking about this. Let's get straight into a question. Uh, it was on email from Emma who emailed us in podcasts at witch.co.uk. And Emma asks, what are the main things to look out for when it comes to trying to spot fake reviews? I'm especially worried with Black Friday coming up next week. Yeah, good one. Yeah, that's a really, really great question and something that quite a lot of people are understandably concerned with. So um, one of the main things you can do is look at as much of the feedback for an item as possible. So look for the negative feedback and try and filter that out and get a good idea of the pros and cons of an item, especially if you're looking to spend quite a lot of money on something. So Really, a healthy dose of scepticism is your best protection against fake reviews. And as I say, if you come across an item that's got purely five-star reviews, it is worth your time to have a look at the pros and cons that people have highlighted within their reviews. And if an item has got five stars absolutely across the board, it's really important to question how likely it is that 
every single person that's that's purchased the product had absolutely no faults with it whatsoever. It's also important to look out for some of the, the telltale signs of fake reviews. So while honest feedback tends to include specific information about the reviewer's experience with the product, a common request that we found for those that choose illegitimate means to get five stars is asking for lots of pictures and videos to accompany those words. So if there's something you've got your eye on for Black Friday, it's really important to read the feedback of the product you're looking at ahead of time. Look at those pros and cons of what you're looking to spend your money on before you part ways with any cash. I was amazed during the episode when I was talking to you for it to hear that a five-star review can set you back all of 65 pence for a five-star review if you buy them in a block. I, I was like, what? And that there, it's not just individuals doing it. There are whole businesses kind of structured around this. Um, here's a question, though. Uh, which products are most likely to appear with a fake review? Can you kind of put them into, into themes in that way? The short answer is no, unfortunately, but which has done an array of investigations into fake and incentivized reviews. And many of these feature tech items. So Bluetooth speakers, wireless earphones, dash cams, smart watches, that sort of thing. And we found multiple examples that had signs of fake and incentivized review practice. But fake reviews can be used to drum up positive feedback on any type of item, really. So we've also found that the practice has been used for false eyelashes, bath mats, fairy lights, face masks. So there's not really a particular type of item or category of item that you'll find fake reviews or you may find fake reviews on, unfortunately. So it's vital to take care when you're buying anything online, particularly, as Kate mentioned, from unknown brands. So you may well come across a company on an online marketplace like Amazon or eBay, for instance, that you don't recognize. And they could well be an honest startup or smaller business that's trying to do things um, legitimately and have a good product with good customer service, etc. But there are others that attempt to take shortcuts to jump to the top of, of listings. So again, it's about doing your homework, checking online to see if a company you come across has a legitimate looking website, for example, as well as clear contact details should you need to get in touch with them if anything goes wrong or you're not happy with anything. But Unfortunately, we found that fake and incentivized reviews are present on lots of different types of uh, items. And just to clarify that one as well, fake is when someone else essentially writes it. Incentivized, from what I learned, was uh, when even if someone writes a negative review, the owner may get in touch with them and say, hey, would you be up for maybe having a refund and increasing the number of stars or or that sort of thing or, or, or paying a legitimate purchase to do um, an incentivized review. Just to jump on what you said there, Marianne, I'm going to put this to Kate, actually, um, on the on the position in the listings. Kate, can you talk to me about the algorithm? Someone asked how the algorithm actually works on these sites. Well, that's a really good question, because actually we don't know. This is one of the problems with algorithms. They are what's called black box. You know, information goes in and something comes out. We don't know how that's processed. I mean, broadly, they are looking at number of reviews, popularity, number of engagements with it, how long you, you look on something. And if you're signed into eBay or Amazon, then you have recommendation algorithms as well, based on your past purchases and stuff you've clicked on. But this is one of the problems with algorithms. You know, they are proprietary information and they're not open to scrutiny. 
Yes, indeed. The mystical algorithms. Um, thank you, Kate. And thank you, Marianne. If you've got more questions from Marianne, again, please put them in the comments. Uh, I'm sure there are lots about fake reviews, incentivized reviews. Fascinating topic. Let's move on, though, to Gavin, who's been uh, politely sat there waiting for us. Uh, so let's talk about digital money, if we can, Gavin. When I was chatting to you, it turns out there's nothing you really don't know about this or indeed uh, positing about the future. But Rosita on email has got in touch, podcast at witch.co.uk, and said, is a cryptocurrency subject to inheritance tax, uh, which is interesting because you explained to me how crypto isn't protected in the same way as the money that we have in a traditional bank. So in other ways, what is it subject and not subject to these various forms of tax? Yeah, thanks very much for the question there, Greg, and uh, also to the viewer as well, sending the question in. Essentially, in terms of what, what it's not covered by would be the same kind of regulatory protections that we have at the moment. So, for instance, when you've got money in a bank account, if you suffer a problem with your bank or, for instance, there is any kind of fraudulent transaction or indeed any kind of errors that might happen as part of your banking activity, a lot of that is supported either by the regulator or even by the actual bank themselves. Now, obviously, in the space of cryptocurrency, in its purest, what's known as decentralized form, which just means it exists outside of the traditional institution. And, and payment systems that we've come to use over the many, many decades. Effectively, what that means is, is that there is no longer that, that support mechanism in there. But what there is still is the ability to tax any gains that you make. So if you if someone dies and they're in control of some, uh, let's say it's Bitcoin or something similar, that Bitcoin is still subject to inheritance tax. So with inheritance tax, typically you're allowed an exemption or an allowance of around about £325,000 under present rules. Anything in excess of that is taxed at your marginal inheritance tax rate, which is typically about 40% subject to certain reliefs and things. So what that does mean is that if someone has a lot of Bitcoin, a lot of value, they do want to pass it on as part of their death estate, as we would know it, then that will be passed from one, the person who's died to the person who's receiving it. And it does unfortunately mean that they will be liable to any inheritance tax, which is due in the same way as inheritance tax might be due on a property or even on stocks and shares or other types of taxable assets. Right. So you don't necessarily get the same protections from the state or from the system, but uh, they will indeed still take the tax. Is that right? Oh, yes. And I'm, I'm pretty certain you could probably have hypothesized that one before uh, I gave you the answer, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, Sarah on Facebook asked a question about contactless money. Now, we talked in the episode about the concerns about contactless cars potentially being skimmed. And actually, the fact that that doesn't happen very often. It's not being reported. But uh, Sarah says, please reassure me, is contactless money safe? I still try to pay with physical cash where possible. I don't think the contactless limit going up is a good idea. What if someone steals your card? So there's a few a few things for you to jump in on that, Gavin. Yeah, no, it is a great question. And I think it's become ever more topical, A, because of COVID and B, during COVID, both at the start and later on, we've seen increases in that contactless limit. So it went up from £30 to 45 and then from 45 up to 100 which means in terms of your general day-to-day -day retail spending, it's going to be quite rare that you actually end up actually required to put your PIN number in, apart from now and again when there is potentially atypical spending whereby uh, you're, you know, you're flagged to be using your card in a different way to usual or maybe more frequently than usual, in which case it will request you put your PIN number in. One thing I would say is, is that is that the regulator and the, the, the wider banking community wouldn't be 
putting that rate up if they didn't actually have faith and, and, and credibility in the system in terms of its security. As you say, the data shows it's relatively rare in terms of that actually occurring. And many people will purchase different types of wallet technologies and the ability to shield your cards from skimming or similar sort of things that might happen. But actually, although that's, they're quite popular, you tend to see the actual raw data is, is not particularly high at all in terms of it occurring day to day. But what I would say is that when it comes to actually uh, using contactless, the bigger thing to worry about is propensity for debt. People are much happier and able and willing to move into debt when they're not being forced to actually put a PIN number in, but instead can pay very easily and therefore are more willing and able to accumulate debt, which is maybe not such a good thing. That is such a good point. Yes, because you just tap, tap and go. You know, it's just so free and easy to do that. Whereas counting out fives, ones, tens, whatever it is, you know, very, very different to just the ability to do that. Yeah, of course, it's that much money. Away we go. Um, Andy, I want to um, circle you in on this uh, conversation and kind of combine the hacking with the the Bitcoin conversation and ask you to speak on um, crypto mining, if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So we we mentioned previously about why people at target devices and about how the, the bulk attacks, which are anonymous, just going after as many devices as possible. And one reason can be for something called crypto mining, also known as crypto jacking. Um, effectively, the way that crypto works is it requires complex math- mathematical equations to be done to, to generate the, the currency. And um, that requires a lot of computing power, which is Part of the reason why there's a quite big sustainability and eco question around Bitcoin. But also it means that um, criminals are harnessing lots of devices and then using their computing power to effectively make money in Bitcoin. You get paid in Bitcoin to to do the the calculations, which is why there's been quite a few stories about major supercomputers. I think there was a big Russian, secret Russian nuclear site that came online because the uh, people there were... using it for uh, mining Bitcoin rather than doing what they should be doing. Um, so that's going to be often why these devices are often harnessed. We did a test about three years ago where we infected a load of phones and computers with um, cryptojacking malware. And um, the outcome is uh, it absolutely ruins your machine. Um, it, it, uh, it shortens the hard drive life. It cuts the battery life. And it basically uh, destroys your hardware just so these people can make a bit of money on uh, on cri- cryptocurrency. So that's where the, the worlds of digital finance and hacking devices start to collide um, as such. Fascinating. Thanks for that. Um, Kate, I've got a question from Owen, who's watching in the live chat on Facebook right now, who asks, would you advise using a guest network for your devices so your Wi-Fi is not as hackable? Yes, that's a really good point. Yes, most modern Wi-Fi routers come with an app and it's actually quite easy to set up a guest network. That means your friends can jump on your Wi-Fi and be online without racking up their data charges on their phones or if you've got somebody who's come to stay, but they haven't got access to the rest of your network. So, yes, I absolutely recommend that. It's a great idea and a great question. Nice one. Thanks, Owen. Keep the questions coming. I can see loads coming in. This is awesome. Marianne, I've got one for you. Someone says, is there any way to report a fake review if we believe something has been posted and it is misleading? That's a great question. So one of the best ways to do this and the way that we would recommend is making a report through the means that the online platform encourages. So for example, Amazon encourages anyone who is in doubt of the credibility of a review of a product to click the report of use link, which is below every review on its site. And eBay is another example. They also encourage users to report any issues with a seller or a review in particular, or indeed an item to them as well. 
And another thing that you can do to share any fake or incentivized reviews that you think you've come across is by sharing them with us. So while which can't delve into every single example that we find of this kind of practice, any examples that we do have help us kind of build a picture of the wider problem and can form part of future research to encourage positive change and collaboration from from online platforms. But the issue is that there's just so many examples, unfortunately, of this happening. Follow-up question as well from Alex on email. Are you eligible for a refund if you purchase something and later find the product has fake reviews? Usually, yes. But from my understanding, it comes down to the discretion of the platform. So for example, if you speak to Amazon about an issue that you're having, the likelihood is that um, you will be reimbursed for that in some sort of manner, whether it's part of the cost or the entire cost. Gotcha. All right. Thanks. Now, Andy, you mentioned the environmental costs of Bitcoin mining. And I think this is something that would be fun to explore, Gavin, with you first. So in the first season of Witch Investigates, we looked at lots of sustainability questions. As I mentioned in my introduction, how, you know, the impact of going plant-based or getting an electric car and how, you know, it's not as black and white. You've got to explore the, the, the detail in the grey areas to work out where kind of everything fits on the greenwashing to genuine eco-effect spectrum. And the last episode, in partnership with the Witch Money podcast team, we looked at the environmental impact of your money and how that actually can dwarf everything. So maybe just say a few lines to that, Gavin, but then the question really is about the environmental impact if we shift to more of a world of digital money away from cash. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah, it's a superb question and a big question. One of the problems we've got at the moment is that the new form of money, or at least contender for the new form of money, is that of cryptocurrencies, which are an extreme version of digital money in the sense that they're not controlled by banks or institutions. Now, often the problem with those monies is that they are controlled and verified and effectively monitored by a community. These are people known as Bitcoin miners that Andy referred to before. And one of the drawbacks of that is if you've got a community performing the actions of what would have previously been done by just one bank, it can actually be more energy intensive, meaning that at the moment, just with, let's say, something like Bitcoin, it uses about 1% of all global electricity consumption just to maintain that currency, which is about the same as the Netherlands as a country. So clearly that's a problem. But one of the things crypto enthusiasts would actually point to is say, well, you know, what's the current carbon footprint of the parallel system of the banking sector? You know, one thing that's being offered here is the alternative of doing something in a different way. And therefore it's not fair necessarily to point at that 1%. But one of the drawbacks that we have in aggregate is as mankind, as planet Earth PLC, is both of these systems are running in parallel. So the question is, you know, if one is better than the other from a sustainability or a cost effectiveness perspective, you know, let's go with one of them. The trouble is they're both running in parallel, which is any good project implementer will tell you is always the way to introduce any type of project. So the jury's still out to some extent. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency do have a problem with sustainability, but so does the broader monetary system as well. Gosh, wowzers. Yeah, even 1% is, is huge. Lovely mention of Planet Earth PLC. Hadn't heard of them. Just let's do a quick follow up on that one. We talked in the episode when we were chatting about the central bank digital currencies. I think that's right, the CBDCs. And this notion of, we didn't talk about it in the podcast, but some uh, headlines have branded it Britcoin, the Bank of England's potential digital coin. We didn't include much of that in the pod. So maybe just talk a little bit about that and how far they've got. 
Yeah, sure. So um, uh, Biz, who are called the Bank of International Settlements, they are the central bank of central banks. They surveyed all central banks about two or three years ago, and about 80% of central banks said that they currently had an active CBDC program. Now, the question is, is what are these? Um, they've only really been around for about four or five years, but they're effectively, many people describe them as a crypto version of your current fiat currency. So that would be a what's often known as a crypto or digital pound, a digital dollar, et cetera. And what we're really looking at there is the Bank of England and other similar nation states actually taking some of the positives from technology such as Bitcoin, making it available in a new form of currency, but still maintaining the pound and the yen and the euro, et cetera, but doing so in a way that the state is more comfortable. So in other words, lots of the anonymity which comes with cryptocurrency won't necessarily be afforded to citizens in the case of a, a new form of digital currency that their central bank might issue. Now, a few of the reasons why this is beneficial, the first one is access to finance. So this is the kind of thing that might automatically be granted to a citizen. So for instance, here in the UK, you might get your national insurance number on your 16th birthday. You might also get a digital wallet with the Bank of England to enable you to host and move this new form of currency should it come along. Yeah. I mean, I remember when we were talking about this, it doesn't feel like it, it just feels like it's a different version of the same thing. And I'm going to ask Kate for your opinion on this, because I know that you, you have opinions on this one. I have opinions. I mean, you know, the economic stuff is slightly above my pay grade. But one thing that the, the proponents of this talk up a lot is sort of, you know, access to finance for the unbanked. It doesn't solve the problem of digital exclusion, which I think is, is something we need to focus on. It's, you know, it's edge cases, it's marginal cases. But there are people out there whose only way of interacting with an awful lot of society and civic society is through an ancient phone. They don't have access to the to bank accounts, online bank accounts, and are horribly disadvantaged that way. So I have, you know, for, as a tech person, that's very much my issue with it. And on top of that, you know, there are talking. There's been talking about how these are central digital currencies, as it were, could be used to, for example, define how it's spent, which to me feels like sort of, you know, a way of sort of going down to the micro level of monetarism, controlling the money supply for particular sectors. And again, I have issues with that, but that's a whole other and really interesting conversation. But then I'm crypto skeptic anyway. Well, we also talked, Gavin, about um, the potential that a, a big tech company like Facebook could start its own. You know, they have obviously talked about Libra in the past. They have such a large catch-all of all of us and our data that that could silo it even more. But Kate's point about banking the unbanked, what do you think is the kind of shining light? Where, where could we go in the future to open access, so to speak? Yeah, open access is definitely the way forward. And and if you look at the regulation in financial services, not just crypto here, this is about banking. This is uh, the legislation is called PSD2, which is the Payment Services Directive 2. This is this is one of the reasons why when you go on your app, uh, with it be whichever bank you're with, you've now got the ability to actually pull in your account balances from other banks. So even though you might be with NatWest, you can pull in your HSBC balance, you can pull in your Santander credit card, you can start to aggregate all of that financial information into one central dashboard, which makes things much easier for you as the as the holder and the user of these rather than having multiple logins for all of these different types of financial systems. So it's very much the direction of travel. But one thing I would say is on the Facebook point that you mentioned, most commentators in the space believe that big tech is coming for financial services. So over the next generation plus, you know, get ready for your pension with Google, your mortgage with Facebook, you know, get very comfortable with the idea that this next generation coming through is not so brand loyal when it comes to bank affinity and bank branding. And in fact, is going to be much easier and much more capable to not only pivot towards your big tech companies like your Googles and your Facebooks and your Microsoft, but we're also like 
likely to see the fusion of the social media world and the world of finance coming together as well so that everything is integrated into one central platform and just before i finish i will mention the word meta which is kind of the the general direction and the, the nirvana of where things might end up one day but you know maybe other panelists have got something to say on that Yes, I was going to say, here comes not only MetaCoin, it's MetaCare, it's MetaPension, it's... Right, anyway, Andy, got a question for you. I'm going to just sidestep from, from uh, from this world for a second. Simon in the Facebook live chat says, are smart alarms safe, Hive, Ring, et cetera? So we're back to hacking and uh, smart tech homes. Yeah, so um, I recently launched a smart alarms test for which, and um, this is one of our primary concerns because ultimately this is the thing that's going to safeguard your house. You not only want it to be sort of secure from external tampering and, and, and hacking and so on, but also, you know, you're going to rely on this thing to alert you and alert those around you if someone tries to break in. So if, uh, for example, it can't activate if you don't have an, an internet connection, it suddenly becomes completely redundant. And actually, this is a real problem we have with a lot of smart tech. It's so reliant on the internet connection that actually when the internet drops, and I think we can all probably on this call and everybody in this whole country can attest to a time when their broadband's gone, this is a reality. So we do test for how um, resilient they are and how much they keep going to a certain extent as a functional arm without an internet connection. And and thankfully, a lot of them do. They have a fail-safe state. Usually what will happen is the alarm will still function, but you won't get any notifications until you return the internet connection. So there's a bit of drop-off, but it will still functionally alert people around them with a nice loud alarm that someone's trying to break in. Interesting. Thanks, Andy. Marianne, I want to put a question to you from James on email. What are companies like Facebook and Amazon doing about the problem of fake reviews? And it's interesting to mention Facebook there because that's we also talked about Facebook, didn't we, for the episode and how that is also, it's not just Amazon, but it's Facebook and various other online platforms that are succumbing to these fake and incentivized reviews. What are they doing about it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So with Amazon, for example, they've told us that they have a specific policy that's designed to help prevent any kind of buyer incentivization and to stop sellers or brands from becoming best sellers on its site by illegitimate means. This is called its anti-manipulation policy. And it also states that any attempts to manipulate reviews, whether that's directly or indirectly, and contributing to false or misleading or even inauthentic content is strictly prohibited. So it also says that it determines whether a seller or brand has attempted to, if it notices that a seller or brand has attempted to manipulate reviews or it has any suspicions that they have, it will immediately suspend or terminate their Amazon privileges. So that can be delisting their items or removing reviews or um, removing them as a seller entirely. Facebook, as you said, has also encountered issues like this. So Facebook has told us that it has dedicated extensive time and resources to tackling the issues of fake and incentivized feedback, and it's promised to continue doing that. It's also told us that fraudulent and deceptive activity isn't allowed on any of its platforms. But these comments are one of the driving forces behind Witcher's new campaign, um, Just Not Buying It, which demands that new strong laws are introduced by the government to force these tech giants to protect people online, as we feel that they're simply not doing enough to protect us from online scams or dangerous products or indeed fake reviews. 
I'm really glad you mentioned that. Thank you. Yeah. If you want to check out the Just Not Buying It campaign, uh, we're using hashtag Just Not Buying It on social media. Uh, there's a petition that you might be interested in signing. If so, go to campaigns.witch.co.uk for that. Campaigns.witch.co.uk. You'll find in all the information, essentially at which we believe that tech companies aren't doing enough to protect us online from scams, uh, from dangerous products and indeed fake reviews. And we're demanding new strong laws be introduced to make the tech giants keep you protected online. Okay. I think we've got time for a few more questions. So I want to chuck this one at uh, UK, actually, jumping off the back of the mention of Black Friday earlier and the mention of needing to update products, not just software, obviously raises concerns over sustainability, harking back to season one of the podcast as well. Um, So this is a great question that we got via Witch Conversations, which is our online community where you can discuss and share any consumer issues that matter to you. It's from Wave Change. The question is, will the lifetime of devices be reduced by the introduction of the Internet of Things IoT technology, good or bad for sustainability? Well, the answer is we don't really know because most of these devices don't have any indication about how long their their life cycle is, their support life cycle is. I mean, it's one of the things we've been calling for in our work is for clear upfront information at point of sale about just how long a device you're buying is going to get support for. And by support, I don't mean, you know, customer support. I mean, how long will it get updates? How long will it get patches for security vulnerabilities? Will you get updates to the operating system it's working on? We've had some success in this area of our phones getting better but it's really hard to say and so this is why it's even more important to make sure that the rest of your network and the rest of your security practices are as secure as they can be just to you know cover for the fact that actually some of these devices we just don't know thanks kate so it goes back to make sure everything's updated strong passwords two-factor authentication Uh, always struggle to say that one and yeah making sure everything's up to date this is an amazing question from Adam, who's uh, watching live right now. And uh, forgive me, I'm just going to read it. Um, how should we go about extending digital inclusion whilst minimising the risks of exposure to data identity or financial risk and protecting vulnerable people? So this expands on what we were saying earlier about uh, needing to bank the unbanked, but takes it wider. What does that inclusive world look like in terms of ownership and protections? It strikes me, says Adam, that a lot of this IoT stuff is potentially great for accessibility. For for instance, but incurs even greater exposure to these sorts of often very complex risks. Who would like to comment on that first? First to show their hand, gets the floor. Uh, I, I don't mind taking that one if it's right. Yeah, I, I think this is the real balance that we we have to strike with, with IoT because actually there are huge benefits um, particularly for people with um, you know access issues, people who struggle with traditional interfaces, people actually having a voice command is really good. You know, it means you don't have to sort of schlep around the house turning things on and off. You can set routines. It's also really good for people who look, looking for some kind of remote support as well. You know, in a, in a responsible way. But of course. The flip side of that is there is inevitably some kind of data sharing agreement. There is inevitably some kind of uh, trade-off you get into, particularly with low-cost devices. And I think that's where we we balance things off. And we can get into the whys and the wherefores about um, the ethics of this and that and the other. For me personally, and I think you know partially for, for which as well, is what we really want is people to be in control. So to know what they're getting into at the point of purchase, to know what they're getting into when things change, and to be able to make an informed choice which matters for them. Because people have different views about what sharing they want to give. Some people are quite happy to give away a lot of data if they get a good device, and that's okay. Some people really aren't. But at the moment, nobody can make an informed choice because very rarely even with GDPR, 
clear um, what, um, what's going on. I'll give you an example very quickly. We've just looked at a very big platform and I've had uh, two lawyers, very senior lawyers, looking at the privacy policy and we're still not quite sure, 100%, not saying it's non-compliant, but still not 100% sure of what you're getting into. That situation is not useful to anybody, not least the consumer in the middle. Thanks, Andy. Kate, you've talked about this to me, uh, including on the Smart Assistance episode. That's our next episode that's coming up, which is um, other likes of Alexa and Google and Siri uh, always recording in addition to listening and what the implications. But on that question specifically, please, Kate, I know you've got something to say. Yeah, I mean, I had a, put my back out a couple of years ago and I suddenly realised just how incredibly useful some of these devices are. Being able to answer the phone, answer the door using my phone, not having to stagger to the front door and get there long after the person's given up and gone away. Oh, yeah, with older people, being able to drop in on them via devices to check that they're OK, um, keeping tabs on what they're up to. There are devices that can let your loved ones know if you haven't walked in front of a motion sensor for 24 hours, for example, which might be an indicator of a fall. There's lots of interesting and important, I think, use cases to these. And it, it is always a trade-off with data and usability. But I think this is a really important point for, for, going, for, for getting older in the 21st century, which is very much on my mind. You've got a while yet, Kate. You've got a while yet. Gavin, I want to come to you with the reflections on this in terms of money. Two things. The first is just to comment on, on that question, really, and, and benefits versus risks, complex risks. But then also I'm going to put this question to you from Viner Hill watching live on which conversation it just says without any context, why not just condemn cryptocurrency completely? So my challenge is, can you convince this person that it is uh, it has benefit or not? Okay. Yeah. I'll take the the, the first question. So the, the, the idea of um, uh, benefits, especially when you look at an IoT type environment, the trade-off is clear and this has been wrestled with at a state level as well. So a great example of this is uh, in India. So India had a significant, what's known as shadow economy. So lots of transactions happening cash in hand, the right amount of tax and activities not being monitored or tax being paid to the exchequer in the, that particular nation state. So they've gone through a system called called the UPI system. Uh, it's on a platform called Adhar and they've effectively taken their 1.3 billion adult population and given each of them a digital identity, which now means that the surge and consequential proliferation in the number of businesses which are now using that digital identity to to allow them to engage in digital transactions. Now, admittedly, this isn't Internet of Things, but what it does do is it lays that marker for a genuinely interconnected economy where everyone can participate. Now, that's the kind of upside, you know, value creation, uh, minimizing tax gap from a nation state perspective. So, you know, people pay the right amount of tax on what they actually do. The downside, though, is just exactly what you're giving away. So that example I just gave there, it's not just about digital identity. They're capturing other things on age, demographics, sexual preferences, religion. So it's not a, a far cry to imagine what might then happen to that sort of data if it was to be used in a more nefarious way or controlling way by the nation state. The second question you gave was around cryptocurrency. Why not just condemn it? You can. You can just condemn it. But the problem is you can't turn it off. So unless we're willing to start cutting the global electricity supply or regulating or turning off global internet, then it will persist. And it will only persist as long as individual users believe it has a use. And in my mind, there will always be at least a minority of people, a significant minority of people who find some utility in having access to a currency which is outside of our traditional system for better or for worse. 
I saw all panellists nodding when you started talking about the data that's being collected. And that was actually the concern of one of my interviewees, Hamed, when we were talking about smart assistants, which is the next episode of Which Investigates, and how potentially could that information add up to something that can then be leveraged in other ways or be used to nudge you in a particular direction. Sadly, panellists, we only have a couple of minutes left. So I just want to expand on the previous question of the benefits versus the risks, I think. We've touched on them, but I think for the type of smart tech that we can see for the majority of people, let's absolutely park the fact it's it's very fair that for some people, this smart tech is hugely beneficial to their way of life, to their health, to their family connections. But for some of the technologies that we could probably do without, like a smart assistant just turning on a light or maybe even online shopping, Marianne, maybe I'll come to you first. Maybe many new types of digital technology. Where do you feel on this? Just 20 seconds, 30 seconds max from each of you on this kind of slightly more nuanced question of, is it worth the risks? Are we pro it more than we're con it? Well, I guess we all are, but here we go. Let's see, Marianne, let's you go with you first on online shopping. I think for me, it's about being as cautious as possible with anything that you're doing. So any purchase that you're making and taking the time to do as much research as possible. And that can be worthwhile. But equally, I do see the cons of, you know, being very, very cautious with your money and choosing to purchase things in, in store instead. And you know, avoid fake reviews and incentivize reviews entirely because it's a very, very murky world. And it's especially very concerning for, for people that aren't that familiar with tech and, for example, how these things work and how reviews can be manipulated in that way. Yeah, thanks. We haven't even got into um, shopping local and smaller business and, and all those sorts of angles to this. Andy, Andy, same question to you on smart tech benefits versus costs on the nuance. Well, I think we, we can we can get into the weeds of the tech, and it, and I think I, I work in the industry, and I know how jargon filled and how confusing it is, and how it's awfully done at times. But I think what we're always talking about here is a need. I need to spend money. I need to turn the lights on. I need to put the washing on. I need to watch Netflix. And we're not ever going to scrap those needs. Technology is just facilitating a new way to do what we need to do. And we need to remember, well, those needs we had understandings like you know i always talk to people about online safety think about when you're in town don't walk down a dark alley don't trust someone you don't know be wary of certain situations these are the same principles that we just need to transfer to a new type of way of accessing these services so for me it's not about is this worth doing or is it not worth doing it's like marianne said it's just about we're doing it smarter with a bit more care and a bit more consideration and making sure that the people providing the services are doing what they should be doing, which unfortunately is not always the case. This is the world we are in. We need to make it as safe and as fair and as simple as possible. Kate, your thoughts on that? I think for me, uh, the nuance comes in what's appropriate for me? Where are my lines in the sand? So, for example, I use Android, which tracks everything you do. But for me, I use Edge and Outlook on Android because actually I don't particularly want Chrome passing on every single detail of everything I do to my phone and on Facebook. I use Outlook because it means that Google isn't scanning my email every 30 seconds. So it's it's kind of understanding where your personal lines in the sand are. I mean, there are others who'd say to me, but use Android. So that's completely mad anyway. You have no lines in the sand. But this is my comfort zone. So it's understanding your comfort zone and then thinking about what the tech can do for you and where maybe you don't need it. Thanks, Kate. Gavin, finally, do you have any lines in the sand? I know you're very pro, of course, the future of money. Are you all in, to use a financial term from poker? 
I don't think I am all in, actually. And I think that's the great challenge that we have with the future of money and in particular cryptocurrency. And that is, generally speaking, it's almost impossible to keep technology at bay. So similar to King Canute kind of pushing the waves back or trying to, I really see cryptocurrency like that. The technology is there and the problem is it will persist. And the question is, is how do we institutionalize it? I don't think anyone wants to live in a world of complete decentralization with no banks, no institutions of government or central banks. That's not really a, a world I really subscribe to or want to live in. But the challenge is, is how do we adopt it without taking on those downside risks? And that really is a challenge for the regulators and bankers of today. So uh, yes, I do expect it to be part of our future. The question is exactly how it's going to manifest and how we protect consumers from you know some of the more nefarious aspects of the technology brilliant thank you gavin thank you all gosh we could keep talking about this all day and i'd love to um i've already had fantastic conversations with all of you for the podcast we could keep nattering for ages about this but i must end it there a big thank you then to my panelists for their time for their expertise for their wisdom big thanks to kate bevan the editor of which computing magazine big thank you to andy lachlan principal researcher in the which product testing team marianne cowan which senior researcher and writer specializing in retail and e-commerce and also gavin brown associate professor in financial technology at the university of Liverpool. Thank you all. A huge thank you to you as well for watching our first ever Witch Investigates live panel event. Um, thanks also for your brilliant questions. Very much appreciated. If you've liked what you've heard, if you want to hear more of this sort of thing, um, dive into some of the topics we've been talking about in more detail, then you can listen to the first four episodes of our current tech and security season of Witch Investigates. We've got four more on the way. Uh, I've mentioned that the next one will be all about whether Alexa, Google, Siri, etc. are always listening. Are they always recording? what the implications of that and with COP26 just finished in Glasgow if you would like to hear our greenwashing investigations then do go check out the first eight episodes the first season of which investigates as ever do keep in touch on social I'm at Greg Foote on social which is at which UK um, we also have an email address now it's podcasts at which.co.uk for any thoughts or any questions that you'd like us to investigate in the future I'll be back with a new episode of the podcast next Friday uh, for me and all the panellists thank you so so much <laughs> goodbye goodbye